Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, delighted to be here to present these uh, results. And of course, any project of this nature is a collaboration, and we're uh, especially indebted to Dr. Nessa O'Connor of the National Museum of Ireland, uh, who is a tremendous collaborator in this project. She facilitated um, us examining the Smarmore slates from County Louth, and of course, our funders, the great Royal Irish Academy. This is very much a science in archaeology uh, project. And what we're trying to do is to advance our understanding of how slate was actually used as um, a writing material in the late medieval past. And we chose the Smarmore slates from County Louth as our case study uh, for this program of inquiry. And this is very much part of uh, my own ongoing work on the settlements of learned people in later medieval Ireland. And uh, the church site here at Smarmore in County Louth, from which this large collection of slates uh, were recovered, uh, was, of course, the site of learned persons in the 15th century, at least. And the uh, name of the site in Irish is Smyrnamur, which I think is a beautiful word, but it actually derives from um, the Thoinbo Coolinia from the Ulster Cycle of Tales. And the word actually means um, a mash of bone marrow. And this uh, particular bone marrow serves as a cure for the wounds of Ceren MacFinton, who, of course, is one of Coo Cullen's warriors. And this marrow mash miracle cure is administered by a seer physician, Finian Faithrig. And in a while, we'll see that, interestingly, some of the inscriptions on the Smarmore slates are actually plant-based medical recipes for curing wounds. Now, is this a coincidence? Um, uh, Smarmore, or Smyrmur, was a borderland church settlement throughout the medieval period, initially of the old Gaelic kingdom of Fiorosh, where it met Brega, uh, subsequently of the Anglo-Norman cantred of Furris, and in its most recent past, it became a mirroring of the barony of Ardee on the Loud Mead border, and that's its boundary context. And interestingly, in the sites that I've looked at in Gaelic Ireland, uh, where we have learned people, these are always in borderland places. The hybrid culture uh, of Louth in the 14th and 15th centuries has been highlighted, of course, by the historian Brendan Smith. So let's move on and look at uh, how these slates at Smarmore were actually uncovered. Uh, we had uh, two excavations at the site, one a little unscientific by the good people of RD, uh, but during the course of that um, excavation, 49 inscribed slates uh, were recovered from the spoil heap by A.J. Bliss of the National Museum um, of Ireland, who visited the site during these um, investigations. And the original find spot of the largest number of the slates is not really known because it wasn't recorded. Subsequently, Bliss himself, um, it's a beautiful name, Bliss, um, he actually investigated the uh, two points in the graveyard. But again, there's no record of where exactly in the graveyard he recovered three additional uh, slates. 
Now, the main uh, publications on the Smarmore slates are, of course, two by Bliss himself, uh, which he published in Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy in 1962, and also in the Loud Journal. Um, and there is a more recent publication by Britton and Fletcher, who were very interested in the Hiberno-English and the polyphony on some of the slates. So there are 51 inscribed slates in all from uh, Smar Moore. And um, you'll notice in some of them, uh, for instance, this one here, there's a little perforation. Some of them have perforations indicating that they appear to be reused uh, roof slates. The, the actual slate itself uh, was um, analyzed by John Jackson, the great geologist with the National Museum of Ireland during the 1960s. And um, his determination is that most of it is this uh, interesting olive green slate, um, which is uh, quarryable just east of Smarmoor at Drakestown. And of course, the colon area just southeast of Smarmoor is also a slate rich area. So plenty of slate uh, to be had around Smarmoor. Just to put the Smarmore slates into some sort of context for you, we have, of course, a number of collections of slates from these isles, um, from Nendrum and County Down, 30 inscribed slates, generally described as trial pieces. Uh, these are all early medieval in origin. Uh, more recently, the uh, beautiful monastic island of Inchmarnock, uh, where Chris Lowe and of Headland uh, archaeology excavated in 2008, they recovered um, over 100 inscribed slates. And 14, 14 of those are actual text. All of the rest are pictorial. And this is an example of one of those slates. And you can see the crazy palimpsest of overwriting on the slate, indicating multiple periods of use. And Kate Forsyth has just pulled out this um, red uh, script here, which is a little ohm inscription in the middle of all of that. There are also some very nice 15th century slates from Paisley Abbey from the drains there in Renfrewshire. And we also have, of course, single once-off finds of slate like this little piece, which we recovered from Cowlshee Brack uh, at Cahermachnachthan in the Burren of County Clare. So what about these Smarmore slates? First of all, we know from the work of Bliss and indeed Britton and Fletcher that we're looking at Hiberno-English inscriptions um, of the 15th century period, that most of the inscriptions relate to plant-based medical recipes, um, largely what we call vulnerables used in the healing of wounds. Some have religious verse on them, and uh, about four, in fact four, are inscribed with musical notation or uh, polyphony. Um, so, you know, there's no reason to believe that these uh, slates aren't integral to the history of use of this site. Um, so it really does suggest that there are clergymen here in the late medieval period with knowledge of uh, plant-based medicine and some knowledge of music. The, I suppose the conundrum arises when you start to look at these slates. Um, a lot of the marks on the slates are really very shallow uh, scratches um, with multiple periods of overwriting, lots of sessions of use of these. 
every conceivable surface is used, even the uneven uh, surfaces, and even the area here around the perforation, uh, there's writing around that. So there was an intention to use the whole thing. Now, when looking at the, the slates, um, I noticed that five of them had this curious dark yellow glossy patina on it, and it might be easy to you know just dismiss it out of hand and say, oh, this was some kind of um, you know um, gloss put on them subsequently, but it's not actually the case. Um, the some sort of sharp implement was used um, to cut down into this yellow uh, patina, um, this deposit or accretion on the surface of five of these slates. So our big research question is, what is this stuff on the surface of the slates? Could it be wax? Because we know from collections of slates in the Low Countries that sometimes slate was used as a backing for wax tablets. And we thought perhaps a stylist was being used that was scratching the back of the slates. But things uh, didn't quite turn out like that, as we'll see from Professor Hugh Burns' science in a moment. We decided that uh, microspectroscopy was the best methodology to use in order to try to determine what this uh, substance was on these slates. And in the end, we selected three slates and narrowed them down to two for detailed analysis. Um, slate A, uh, 8A, and its reverse 8B, and this is the, a beautifully preserved um, slate uh, with its last inscriptions on it, which is on display in the National Museum. And this is the one that has the plant-based medical recipe. Uh, and on the back, there's a little verse relating to the work of a leech or a doctor. Um, we also looked at slate 9, uh, a very, very light inscription on this, on the upper half of the slate and some sort of religious lyric on the reverse. And finally, we looked at slate 12A, which is the one that has the stave lines and the musical notation on them. And now I'll hand over to Hugh for the revelations. Thanks, Liz. Um, I was supposed to say, now, and, and now for the science bit. Um, the, uh, it was probably the most animated slide today, I think, maybe, but uh, thanks very much for me. Um, I suppose just to start off, I mean, atoms are constantly in motion, both in, in uh, we're used to considering atoms in motion in gases, in liquids, but also in solids, particularly in molecules. Uh, the atoms are in motion, but they're bound by chemical bonds. And these chemical bonds essentially are usually represented in physics, and for physics background, as balls and springs. Uh, these balls and springs essentially they con continuously oscillate um, as at room temperature, but also at lower temperatures. And essentially, the, the, the rate at which they oscillate depends on how heavy the ball is and how strong the spring is. So essentially, all of these different chemical bonds uh, essentially have a distinct characteristic frequency of them. And then if you have a molecule which is made up of a number of the, uh, a characteristic kind of collection of different bonds, as any molecule is, then essentially all the vibrational frequencies individually of those kind of, of these oscillators, but also the more collective ones of rings collectively vibrating, they all have very, very characteristic frequencies. And those, those characteristic frequencies of the vibrations of these gives rise to the concept of vibrational spectroscopy. 
These vibrational energies, so each of those vibrations has an energy associated with it, which in quantum state is very discrete energy. Um, so you can tell the characteristics of, of a molecule or so by the collection of all of its different vibrations. Um, in order to address these kind of different uh, characteristic vibrations, we use spectroscopy, which is basically shining light on a material and looking at how the material either absorbs that light or, uh, or scatters that light in this case. And that gives rise to a, the, the, the very broad field of vibrational spectroscopy. Um, vibrational spectroscopy is primarily, um, uh, yeah, sorry, pr primarily dominated by the two areas of infrared absorption. These are the typical kind of diagrams we draw in terms of molecules, in terms of the energy levels. Transitions from here to here is what gives a, a molecule a color or a material a color. But actually, the lower energy vibrations, which are in the infrared, sorry, energies, uh, these uh, energy levels are in the infrared, and these are these are what what derives from the vibrations, and these are in the infrared region. region. So the usual way that's uh, for since about the 1850s it was developed, people look at molecules uh, and the transitions between these, the vibrations is through infrared absorption spectroscopy. But an alternative technique that was developed in the 1920s has become increasingly popular now is Raman, spe Raman scattering spectroscopy. Uh, and this is essentially, uh, one is shining the light of material and see what's absorbed by these transitions here. And the other is essentially more of a scattering process, more similar to why the sky is blue in Rayleigh scattering. Or so we, use, we commonly use a combination of these techniques. Um, they're routinely used in chemical analysis, in pharmacology, in geology, in forensics, and increasing in what we're talking about now in archaeometrics. Uh, in, in fact, one of the, the, I was going to say in food science as well, because we recently did a study of grape pips and grape skins from, from Spain, actually, which would be interesting, um, and also in medical diagnostics. Uh, I should mention that these are commonly in, in, in physical chemical sciences uh, referred to as complementary techniques. They're complementary because of the different nature of the interaction of the light. Uh, basically, what's strong in infrared tends to be weak in Raman. What's weak, what's weak in Raman tends to be strong in infrared and vice versa. Uh, infrared tends to be also better for looking at larger areas, whereas Raman is better for, for looking at small areas. Um, in general, Raman is very, very good for anything that's colored. Uh, whereas anything that's colored is not very strong in infrared, uh, and conversely, any of the, the plastic materials or, or transparent materials tend to be strong in infrared. That's a very vague description of the two of them. Um, both of them, in current uh, instrumental uh, applications, both of them can be formed as, as microscopic techniques. Um, I've just shown here, here's the example of the infrared microscope we used, and that's the Raman microscope we use. So they're both used as, uh, as in an infrared, in, in a microscopic uh, modality or so. Uh, so naturally, the first thing when we looked at them, and we both of them also have white lights, when we look at the surface of, of the, one of the slates, this is the, I forget which is which, the 1961 H or so, uh, both of them. So basically, when you look at the microscopy of these, that you can see that there is a coating on them. You can see there's a coating of them, which is a multi-component coating. Uh, that multi-component coating is, is kind of made up of what we started calling something, something spongy, um, you know, not with a discrete kind of, uh, like, a, like a discrete layer, but something which is kind of a spongy morphology. Uh, and also distributed within that morphology, uh, there was colored regions, which I probably wrongly called pigments here. I, I, uh, I, I meant kind of, the, you can see these kind of colored flecks, which are kind of red, orange, kind of, or sometimes yellow or so. And these were kind of distributed randomly uh, within that, that kind of spongy coating. 
To investigate, essentially, first initially that spongy coating is, if you work in the areas of infrared and RAM and so, you say, okay, better to look at that with infrared. Infrared is better for looking at the larger areas and also usually for transparent materials it's better. So we first looked at the infrared spectroscopy. Um, we were looking for, for wax. We were looking for wax and I thought, and, and every now and again, I was absolutely sure, I only sat in on some of these measurement se uh, sessions, but uh, wax, is, wax is essentially a long kind of carbon carbohydrate chain and it should have very strong features here. The red here is an example of, uh, we just measured, just for comparison, some candle wax. Candle wax it, it has very distinctive features here. Every now, I, I think we got two or three instances of it that we, I, I was absolutely convinced that we could see the wax here. You can see the coincidence of these peaks here corresponding to those and those. But it was very, very elusive. So basically what looks, I mean, we can see it by, by eye, we can see it microscopically. We thought, it would, well, uh, this was looking for wax, so we looked for wax. We could see it sporadically. There was certainly some wax-like substance on it, but predominantly, uh, Every time and time and time again we looked, we saw something which had a weaker signal, a very much weaker, these are the CH bonds here, very much weaker CH bonds, uh, but all ill-defined. Looking at a rough surface, the spectra are not well, very well defined, but the red one here is, is albumin, protein, uh, whereas this here has very, very similar kind of features to what could be something much more like a proteinic type substance rather than a wax. Uh, when we want to look at the, 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 the colored material itself, we said, okay, it's much better to use that to look at with, with Raman spectroscopy. As I say, Raman is in the optical region, so it's much better looking at the smaller areas as well. So we went looking at, particularly at, at the, the color of the surface, um, and in both, in, 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 in the cases of the uh, 19th century, this one front and back, let's say, uh, we could see very, very clearly um, I wouldn't say sporadically, very, very reproducibly, but in isolated areas, um, uh, evidence of very, very strong features, mixed features, because we can uh, reproducibly come out uh, that there were kind of three different components of them. I'll go into them in a second. Um, even in the back, sorry, this is the back side of the, the slate, it didn't really visibly have, have any traces that, that pigment is probably the wrong word, but the colored surface substance, but we still got very, very strong features of the spectra that I'll show you in a second. Um, when, we, when we scanned, so essentially when you do this, it, it's, it's a microscopic technique where you essentially scan across the surface and then you get a spectrum and then you can use the various types of, of um, chemometric te uh, techniques to try and decompose the signals that you're getting. Uh, and we consistently got a decomposition into three different components, which were not always directly overlaid, but sometimes there were. So this strong red dot was overlaid with this. And so this is the same area, just deconvoluted into three different chemical con spectroscopic constituent components. And the spectra that we were getting from these, and these were very, very reproducible, um, was, I'll go into this in a second, but uh, you can't really see the yellow. This is not a very good representation of it. The, the key component here is right down here uh, at around about the, the 400 wave numbers. And that's absolutely, absolutely irre irrefutable signature of quartz. The double feature here is a feature of any type of amorphous carbon. Uh, more recently, we look at carbon nanotubes. It looks almost similar to that uh, in various types of carbon. Uh, carbon double-bonded carbon, essentially. Anything that uh, has amorphous carbon in it gives this characteristic double peak here at about 1585 and about 1350 or so. So this, as soon as I saw this, that's carbon. That's amorphous carbon, uh, and absolutely. This here becomes, is a more complex feature. Um, which obviously has components of this in as well. 
sometimes sometimes we can see the the quartz overlaid with this as well so that we, we could deconvolve and convolve it into essentially more than three three features and this is very very characteristic of some kind of chromophore something very colored material which is very strong anything colored is strong in raman and that's what comes out in these spectra Identifying the components becomes much more difficult. As I say, the, the quartz is absolutely irrefutable. The amorph amorphous carbon is irrefutable. What we're getting in terms of those chromophore, that colored material, uh, was, was different between the two slates. Uh, it was the same front and back of, of, of the first one, different than the other one. And it's kind of the features that are given. And also, if you look at the literature, it's, it's absolutely some kind of, it's either derives from a plant or a fruit. And the typical, those type of spectra are very typical of polyphenolic type materials. Um, there are a number of different, I looked at the literature, and there's a number of different uh, of the type of dyes that were used in, at, at the time for various different applications. Um, polyphenolic are these kind of complex type of molecules with many, many of these rings or so. Uh, these are just the examples actually of tannin and tannic acid, which actually could be very good candidates for them also. Part of the complexity, there are libraries of compounds, and we've been through them all, we've been through the literature, could never find an exact match. Part of the difficulty is, is, is it's very possibly and very probably actually a mixture of different components to give the coloring. Uh, and also even some of them, when they were making these, these coloring kind of the, the, the dyes, and so they would use mixtures which, was, which would chemically react and therefore give a more complex structure. Um, but from the three components generated, I mean, I think this is getting into more, but Liz will give the conclusions now. Yellow-brown pigment could possibly have been, uh, it looks that the, 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 what, the material that gives it the sheen is probably more like a protein, which uh, uh, egg white would be a very good candidate for that, because that's essentially, I showed the spectrum of albumin, but ovalbumin is the main component of egg, egg, egg white. Um, and then with impregnated within that, Quartz, irrefutably, quartz, uh, uh, amorphous carbon, irrefutably, and some kind of plant or fruit-derived pigments, um, which were different between the two slates. And this will give the conclusions. So from this um, experiment, um, we've been able to, to tell that some kind of useful paint was applied to the surface of at least five of the Smarmore slates, and especially these ones that we looked at in detail. Um, a plant-based organic dye substance, a charcoal-type uh, carbon, and a quartz, and that these were all bound together by an unidentified mordant, but possibly egg white. So all of those inscriptions on the Smarmore uh, slates um, that sort of crazy palimpsest that you get on a lot of, of slates might be explained by the fact that uh, paint was actually applied to renew the surface of a slate when you wanted to put another inscription on it, and that a sharp-pointed obje object was used to write into the painted surface. And I think this, um, this research is potentially very helpful uh, for people working on slates um, in Europe generally. Uh, there are big slate collections from the Low Countries, for instance, with lots of palimpsests on them, which might be explained by uh, this uh, sort of business of applying a painted uh, surface uh, whereby you could renew your slate surface as required. Thanks very much. <laughs>